0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info.
1: A warning, this episode contains multiple descriptions of graphic violence. And if you're just tuning into the podcast, go back to the first episode and start there. The story will make far more sense. Previously on Shots in the Back.
0: We have open ditches, cesspools pouring down our streets, and we can't stand the pollution. Someone uh, said they resented Chinese coming into their communities to open a business.
2: Probably the most powerful person in the city was a cop.
3: Once you slapped the bully around, the folks around there ain't got to be afraid of you no more.
1: From Jesse Norman School of the Arts and Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Shots in the Back, exhuming the 1970 Augusta riot. I'm Cease Stachura. To today's episode is the first of two about the day of the riot. In today's show, we're going to start with the rallies that happened beforehand. But before we get to that, I want to play for you a clip from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is likely a quote you've heard before.
4: I think we've got to see
5: that a riot is the language of the unheard.
1: King is speaking to CBS's Mike Wallace in 1966.
5: And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened
3: over the last few years.
1: That summer of 66, there were about two dozen civil rights uprisings.
3: How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect?
5: I would say that every summer, we are gonna have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent, And I think the answer about how long it will take will depend on the federal government, on the city halls of our various cities, and on white America
6: to a large extent.
1: Akinyele Umoja is the chair of the African American Studies Department at Georgia State University. Umoja says Black Americans weren't just burning their own communities. They were participating in a spontaneous rebellion, They were rebelling against the systemic violence that we talked about in the last episode, just like today.
5: The violence that occurs that we oftentimes don't consider uh, violence, whether it's, you know, the violence of hunger or whether it's the violence of being poor and unemployed or the violence that occurs because of the, uh, you know, lack of education.
1: The people typically in these circumstances, they're disproportionately black and brown. First, they push back with legal protests. And then when that gets no response, violence can erupt. Reverend Claude Harris says that was the situation in Augusta.
5: So when it came up close to the riot, Augusta was, blacks in Augusta, they were ready for something to happen. It was a lot of tension.
1: To Harris, the riot was an expression of capacity and strength, and the research backs that up. A Harvard Human Rights and International Affairs professor found that protests are a signal of power and force. The day after Charles Oatman died was Mother's Day, a Sunday. Augusta City Councilman Grady Abrams had just come from May's mortuary. He'd seen the boy's 105-pound tortured body, and then he went on his Sunday afternoon talk show.
7: And when I got on the air, I reported what I had seen, and I asked the people to meet me down at the jail, and we would get answers as to what happened to Charles Oakman.
1: He hadn't been the only one to view Charles's body. By then, his parents had seen their son. So had other members of the social justice group, the Committee of Ten. More than two dozen other people also showed up, including one of the black police officers. Rumors spread across the black community about what happened. About 300 concerned residents gathered at May Park.
7: Well, when I got off the air and got to the jail... The jail was surrounded by police officers. The sheriff had called in all available officers to be at the jail and surround the jail.
1: Outside of that jail, the Richmond County Sheriff's Department had spread almost all of its 50 deputies and then as many jailers as could be spared and as many police as the Augusta Police Department would offer them. And they were guarding against 300 or so sign-carrying men and women, and Cecilia Johnson was one of them. She was a student at Payne College.
0: But we were not uh, getting any really information about why, what happened, why was he there in that particular cell, what could have been done to save him. We wanted those kind of answers, but they were not coming. And so, um, so the students, decided that um, we would go you know to the to the jail and and for those who might want to criticize that I would say what if it was your child when you want somebody to demand information you can hear
1: it in her voice Johnson was a campus organizer
0: you know there I was marching Had on a cute little yellow dress and all of that.
1: (laughs) Johnson remembers everyone carried placards. She says it was peaceful but humid. It reached 85 degrees that afternoon.
0: Now, I was probably the only one who got a little bit out of hand, but I didn't really get out of hand. I just walked up to a policeman who was on a motorcycle, and I just looked at him, and I said, would you kill me, you know? And, you know, I was just really curious. We're just walking around, and you're here with these guns on? Would, would you really kill me? And uh, so when I when, said when I stepped out, then the, um, the men, uh, the young boys, the leaders who were there, the next thing I knew, they were picking me up literally and taking me a, a, away from that scene.
1: They were afraid of what could happen, what the armed deputies positioned on the roof of the jail might do. They were still there when the group came out of its meeting with the sheriff and the county's attorney. City Councilman Grady Abrams told the crowd they didn't get any answers about Charles Oatman's death and urged the crowd to reconvene at Tabernacle Baptist Church to talk about the next steps. By then, Reverend Claude Harris had heard about Oatman's murder and the rally at the jail. He headed to the church and found a crowd of roughly 900 people, all of them fed up.
5: And, of course, I'm listening to some of the other folk that uh, said what had happened and what they perceived had happened. And the plan was on Monday, there was a group, I think Abrams was in that group because he was a councilman, said that we're going to go downtown to the courthouse and we're going to try and settle this before something else happens. Now, in my mind, it's already done happen. You don't kill a brother of mine in jail and lied about it. And because you lied about it, then telling me on Monday is not going to satisfy me. So our little group, we decided that uh, we're going to do something and that's going to really make them notice that we're not going to tolerate racism anymore.
1: Abrams heard rumblings in the crowd, especially among people who identified as militants. So he reached out to Georgia's governor.
7: I called Lester Maddox that Sunday evening uh, after the rally. And then I asked him, could he come down and, and do something about it? Because local officials didn't seem to uh, want to hear what we were saying. And he told me that he would get in touch with the uh, some of the officials and see what they say about it. And uh, evidently, yeah, I was one of the officials, but uh, of course, maybe I didn't count.
1: Governor Lester Maddox later said that Augusta's white leadership told him they had everything under control. At 3 p.m. on Monday, May 11th, Abrams and a number of other black leaders met at the municipal building. Abrams says they didn't talk a lot about Charles Oatman's death. Overnight, the sheriff had conducted and completed his investigation. He had charged two of Oatman's cellmates with murder. So Abrams and the others focused on moving black juveniles out of the county jail.
7: And uh, we worked out a resolution of getting those kids out of the jail and sending them to youth development center. Uh, there was no investigation on, into what happened to Charles Oakman in that meeting. But while we were meeting, a crowd gathered in front of the courthouse.
1: News reports estimated the crowd to be as many as 800 people. The city's police chief got nervous, according to former Sergeant Louis Dinkins. When Dinkins arrived for the night shift, he was told to open the armory.
2: And I, I headed up these old shotguns. And uh, I got a couple of boxes of shells that threw me the truck of the car. So then we go down to the courthouse and we lined up with the other uh, police that were already there.
1: From the ninth floor of the municipal building, Abrams looked outside and he saw about 25 uniformed officers openly holding shotguns.
7: And the cops were in the medium. At, uh, on Green Street, across from the courthouse, and they weren't making any any advancement on the crowd that was standing there.
1: But they looked as menacing as they had the night before at the jail, and this time the powers that be were shut up in the municipal building. Then Black Panther Wilbert Allen says that was ratcheting up the tension.
8: People demanded they come out and explain what happened, and they locked the courthouse door. They were afraid to come out of the courthouse.
1: Some people in the crowd found this not just frustrating, but also a sign of guilt. Police and elected leaders were hiding something, was the thinking. But Detective Tommy Olds says the protesters were creating their own mess. Olds was one of the Black officers who was managing the scene.
8: When we saw them coming down Green Street, headed towards City Hall, they were walking on top of cars breaking windshield of cars. What should have happened at that time, they should have been stopped, they should have been arrested. But when they were not arrested, but so then they just went hog wild.
1: Reverend Arthur Sims left the meeting at the Municipal Building to calm the crowd. At that time, he was the head of Augusta's chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference.
9: I was using my time to try to calm uh, those who wanted to throw rocks and balls and those who were inst- gonna instigate uh, the violence. I- I knew who they were. I saw them. They knew me, um, and uh, they they somewhat trusted me. And I was trying to uh, diffuse the situation before I spoke.
1: Sims was as blunt as possible.
9: To them, I was trying, as as anyone else would do, to show them that uh, that the police officers were ready to kill or do whatever to keep order. That I, I let them know that uh, to do anything violently would be self-destructive because they, they would not survive uh, the attempt to, to be violent, it would play into the hands of those who were against us and would be used uh, by the Georgia Bureau, Georgia Bureau Investigation. I knew them and other officers there in the city father who didn't want to see his progress.
1: Mallory Millinder was in that crowd, By 1970, he was an assistant professor at Payne College. He had stopped by the rally to support his students before heading on to a softball game.
6: And several people, including Oliver Pope, who was the leader of the student rebellion here at Payne, and certainly including Wilbert Allen, they gave very fiery speeches
1: Oliver Pope was a Payne College track star and a student representative, and he was also a follower of Stokely Carmichael.
6: Oliver Pope, for instance, uh, someone cautioned him about the intensity of his message in light of the fact that uh, shotguns were trained on him from every direction. And he told them exactly what those police could do with those shotguns. (laughs) And then he followed it with, tonight we're going to war.
1: They wanted action, meaningful action. So Pope and the others went for the state flag. Back then, Georgia's state flag was three-quarters Confederate battle emblem, one-quarter state seal. It is widely considered an emblem of hate. Sergeant Dinkins and the 25 other officers didn't move.
2: And they tore the Georgia flag down and set it on fire right there. The police stood there.
1: Dinkins says people started to head their separate ways.
2: The people that lived out there, the responsible people, they started walking, going to their cars or, or going and walking back out to their neighborhood.
1: Meanwhile, Abrams and others were trying to draw people to a peaceful rallying point in the black business district.
7: Uh, with me, there may have been 10, 10 people walking alongside.
2: But these teenagers are the college students. A lot of them stuck together, and they went down on Broad Street. They went straight down the street from the of the courthouse, and they turned left and started going down Broad Street. We were trying to follow them in the cars and watch them.
7: And one of those persons tossed a brick at the Rice Bar Road bus that was coming by. And then when that happened, other people started throwing rocks, not only at the bus, but at all white people that came through the area.
2: And uh, Captain Beck was out there with us. He was, he was the leader on the street. He was uh, in charge on the street. He got behind him and he said, well, thinking that when they went into the black area, that would be it, they disperse. So he said, just just follow them all across the railroad tracks and then let them go. But before any fire started or anything, it's just people just like coming out of an anthill, all over the streets and lining the streets.
1: SCLC leader Arthur Sims says Olds and another black officer told him the police intended to stay back.
9: So there was no attempt, no plan. To stop uh, the violence, but to contain it in that area, because City father didn't care. Let them, let them get their steam off, uh, tear up, destroy. But one thing they would not do is to go up Walton Way. Uh, they made it clear that if there was a movement to walk Walton Way, people would die.
1: Walton Way is this thoroughfare that leads up to the wealthy white neighborhoods. And police had set up a cordon at the edge of the Black Business District. They called in all available officers, including James Walton. He had been on the force for three years, and he was one of the department's few Black officers.
10: Probably about 6.30. And they called me, told me to be the headquarter in 45 minutes, fully dressed.
1: But Walton didn't go. He quit. Because I
10: had made my mind I was going to quit anyway, you know, actually...
1: He says the department's corruption had just become too much for him. But there was something else, too. It was that he knew his fellow officers were trigger-happy.
10: Toyo Gage shot with buckshot. And that's what they expected for me to do if I'd have been out there. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, with a white officer and a black guy jump up and run. If I don't shoot him, I'm going to hear about it tomorrow. You know, they'll probably run me off the police department. Why you didn't shoot that guy?
1: What's wrong with you? Why you didn't kill him? Officer John Holmes did respond to the call, and he was one of the department's young white recruits. He remembers forming that barrier between downtown and protesters.
9: We started seeing people approaching us, and they were carrying goods, and they were laughing and stuff like that. And and just, you know, we just, our orders were to stand there and not do anything, and that's what we did. It was very strange when people walk up to you and get 10 feet away and hold the television set up in front
3: of you. In.
1: Some interpreted the barricade as cowardice. Others, like local historian James Carter III, saw it as further evidence that police protect and serve only white people.
11: They laid back on Telfair Street to guard downtown because they didn't know whether they were going to come back downtown and tear the place up and burn it down. So they protected downtown, but they were nowhere to be seen in the black community. Nowhere.
1: Initially, Abrams asked the police to stay back. He believed they would make the situation worse. But he quickly realized trying to quell the anger in the streets was akin to fighting a house fire with a watering can.
7: We got in the middle of uh, 9th Street trying to get between the cops and the people who were rioting. And we just tried to get them to stop, but there was no stop. You can't stop a riot. Uh, it's an emotional thing. It's something that people are hyped up with, and it's just almost impossible to get people to stop.
1: That's when police changed tactics.
7: While we were between the cops and, and the people, a chief, well, he was the captain then, Captain Beck, ordered his, his officers to fire They were firing up in the air as they marched toward the rioters, and the wire, uh, electrical wires, started sparkling.
1: A few blocks west of Abrams, activist Wilbert Allen was talking with two prominent Black community leaders when police approached and arrested him.
9: We were standing at Tabernacle
10: Church.
1: Kent,
9: who was a lieutenant on the Augusta Police Department, him and his buddies came and... They were going to kill me. And Reverend Hamilton and Ruffin said, he better be like he is when y'all take him to jail. He better, better be like us tomorrow.
1: Allen says he was lucky the men were with him. When we return, things go from bad to worse as the rebellion heats up. That's ahead on Shots in the Back.
0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll free number is online and is active 24 7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: This is Shots in the Back, exhuming the Augusta 1970 riot. I'm Cease Tachura. Welcome back. Ninth and Gwinnett Street became the epicenter of the riot. In every direction from here, spread over seven miles of city, people erupted. Let me describe the businesses at this intersection for a second. In one direction was a white-owned service station, and there was also May's mortuary, where Charles Oatman's body was delivered. In another, a Chinese-American-owned pharmacy. Look toward downtown, and you'd see S.C. Wu Grocery, also Chinese-American-owned. In that same strip was a white-owned pawn shop, a beauty supply store, and the famous Lennox Theater, where Ray Charles and Ma Rainey performed. For the next half of this episode, we'll use this intersection to survey other hot spots during the riot. Because at this point, it's not so much when as it is what happened. So let's start at S.C. Wu's Grocery, one of the first to be burned. Protester Tim Sanders saw it happen.
11: This man, and I hated to see that, man. This man, I knew then that this man, his children went to the Catholic school. They were, they were good people. But this hate, this thing, this from this system that we lived in, got his store destroyed.
1: Reverend Claude Harris was at that same intersection.
5: And I remember I picked up a garbage can and threw it through the window of a liquor store in the corner of 9th and Laney Walker. I told him, I said, get some courage. And of course, they went and they got the booze and what have you.
1: Firefighters arrived, and Sergeant Dinkins says that's around when Captain James Beck went from defensive to offensive.
2: And Beck put out a call, said, oh, said all units in the area, you know, meet me at, at 9th Street at Gwinnett. He gets out, just car, he's got a Thompson submachine gun, and he points it up in the air, and he, he shoots a whole magazine. And all these people, who were looting on that block above us, they came out and took off in my direction. (laughs) Now I had said they were carrying guns and stuff that they stole out of the pawn shop, but they were they were after us. They were after getting away, but they were coming right at us. I mean, they're going to run by, you know.
1: Tim Sanders ran with a group into a neighborhood. He headed west on a side street toward Black-owned Pilgrim Health and Life Insurance and A.R. Johnson Junior High School. That's the same school Charles Oatman attended.
11: The parking lot of uh, Johnson is a dead end. I can remember this white guy driving a truck up lane and There were Black folks on both sides of the street just in this rage again. And started attacking this man's truck and I think they pulled the guy out of the truck, and I, I'm going, you know, that's, and what is this? You know, what's happening?
1: Near that same school, Sanders says he witnessed a couple of teenagers driving a police motorcycle in circles.
11: They had taken a cop's motorcycle and had him up in a tree. He was up in this tree, and, the, and they thought, hey man, how long you been on the police force? And you know, <laughs> like a casual conversation. But he knew not to come down out of that tree.
1: At that point, Sanders decided to go home. Meanwhile, Abrams took shelter on the porch of a teacher's house. The riot that he and others warned about was in full swing. And people like Claude Harris wanted to use this as an opportunity.
5: So our whole aim and intention was, let's make change. Here's an opportunity. We got a lot of people now that's angry about this little boy. A lot of people had mixed emotions, whether they wanted to be involved, uh, didn't want to be involved. But the whole intention was, don't hurt anybody.
1: Harris and others headed southwest, away from downtown and closer to several housing projects and a railroad track. This was around 6 p.m.
5: And as soon as we made the turn, there was a little boy crossing railroad tracks. And he threw a brick and it hit the windshield of a police car. And he started running, you had to run down the tracks, across, I think this university place, over to Gilbert Manor. And when he came down to the street, the cop opened the door and snatched the shotgun. And he says, come in And the little boy threw his hands up, said, I ain't did nothing to you and tried to keep running. And he lowered the shotgun and pulled the trigger. They went, drove the car down to where it was, grabbed him by, His leg threw him in the back of the car and whipped around the street. And you were right there at University Hospital Emergency Room. So that's where they took him.
1: Harris remembers this victim as a boy, but he was actually a teenager. His name was Lewis Nelson Williams, a 17-year-old student at T.W. Josie High School. And the FBI interviewed multiple people about his shooting. Callie Mae Sims witnessed it. She stood at the mouth of a nearby neighborhood when 100 Payne College students came up the sidewalk. She made an affidavit stating that she saw a police car roll up and stop. Here's an actor reading from her affidavit.
4: There were three city police officers in the car, and all three of the officers got out of the car and started firing at a group of students. Each officer fired approximately five shots at this group. At no time did I hear any orders being addressed to the students, nor did I see any attempt by the students to throw stones. The
1: three officers got back in the car and began to drive off when suddenly they stopped.
4: The driver of the police car got out, went around behind the car, stopped, aimed a shotgun, and fired point blank at a young man standing with his arms raised the two policemen who remained in the car jumped out and dragged the young man to the police car. Sims followed them to
1: the emergency room and got the badge number of the officer. The cop who shot him was Lewis Dinkins. Dinkins remembers what happened very differently than Sims and Harris. Dinkins says his patrol drove past a throng of people at the railroad tracks when someone threw a brick.
2: They hit my wood shield and I jumped out with the shotgun, and I fired about four, five rounds real quick. Up in the and, air. Or in yeah, the air. up in no no up in the air. And they ducked or went, went out of sight. I don't know when they went over the back, stopped and ran. Except for this one bastard. he, excuse me, he walks across the street directly at me, just as arrogant as hell. And I said, well, at least I got one. So I arrested him.
1: Dinkins says Williams struggled, and then he saw sparks flying.
2: And at first it not on what it was. I said,
1: you know, what is that? According to Dinkins, someone had shot at the car. And so he turned to look to see who it was, and that's when Williams took off running.
2: I turned, and with the gun on my, not in position, still on my hip, I touched off that head trigger, and I got it right through the knees, or knee, I should say. When those shots hit him, I knew I'd hit him in the knee because I could actually see red streaks go through his legs.
1: Another witness, Robert Childs, says Williams was one of the people who scattered after the officers started shooting. Childs told the FBI that Williams turned around and, quote, walked within 10 to 15 feet of one of the policemen, end quote. Williams put his hands in the air. Childs says, quote, it seemed as though immediately after one of the policemen shot him, end quote. According to Childs, Williams writhed in pain in the street before two of the officers with Jenkins picked him up and dragged him back to their squad car. They drove Williams to the hospital.
2: Anyway, they finally got him in the back seat, and he's bleeding like a slaughtered hog. And I I drove down the right spur road, made a right, made another right, and went to the old university the ER. We got him in the wheelchair. But there was a black guy who was standing out in an older man. Where I was walking back toward the car, and he said, what happened to him? And I said, I shot him. I was hot. I was bad as hell. And that wasn't a good thing to do. <laughs>
1: Dinkins has told this story before. He had to testify about it in court. He was prosecuted for violating Williams' civil rights. And Williams recovered from his injuries, but he has since passed. And interestingly, his interview with the FBI wasn't included in the 900 pages of documents that we received. And even though it was only about 6 o'clock and there was some daylight still on the street, None of those witnesses could identify the shooter. It's striking how different Dinkins recalls the shooting from Harris. For Harris, the shooting of Lewis Nelson Williams was a turning point. The protest had started off as a way to get answers about the death of Charles Oatman.
5: But when we saw that little kid get shot, strategy changed. Now we really don't care if we hurt you or not. We're going to hurt what you love the most. Things. Things. And uh, so we made a decision then, we need to do something. but We don't need, still don't need to do it with guns. Let's make this bigger. So we could hear, all right, let's, uh, let's make the police run crisscross town. And one of the things that uh, one of the young men said was, let's get the Chinese out of our neighborhood.
1: Starting around 7 p.m., the riot spread across more than 100 blocks. Mostly white and Chinese-American-owned businesses were damaged in the riot. Over 30 fires were set, and most of them were a total loss. It was a scene of chaos. Here's a WSB-TV reporter talking with one business owner whose property was destroyed. Do
8: you know why they uh, picked your place of business out? No, I don't. No, I don't know why. What kind of business do you have here? Grocery business. Could you estimate your loss? haven't any idea right now. Till we get in and see what's gone? I hope we save some of the store. How long have you been in business here? I've been here since World War
1: II. Another business, Shepherd's Grocery, was ransacked. It was just a few blocks from the epicenter, 9th and Gwinnett. Mrs. Geneva Shepard told the Georgia Bureau of Investigation how she learned her business would be targeted. Here's an actor reading from the transcript.
12: Mrs. Shepard stated a drunken colored male customer of hers came into the store and warned her she'd better leave before they came over and tore the store up. Mrs. Shepard attributes his warning to drunkenness and asked him to leave. She said the man went out crying and continued to say that she'd be sorry, but not in a malicious way. She and her husband took his
1: advice and left. They went by May's mortuary, where the people there asked them to take a different route that avoided driving through other black neighborhoods.
12: One woman fell to her knees and begged them, for their sakes, to go back. Upon hearing a great disturbance in the distance, the shepherds backed their car out and went home.
1: Ransacking took place all across town, three miles northwest, where a black neighborhood edged against a white one. A well-heeled, white-owned restaurant was set on fire twice. Some black residents saved white-owned businesses, and some owners wrote Soul Brother across their boarded-up windows. Ellen Dong's family had closed up their stores that afternoon.
0: The way I understood it, my brother heard the rumblings.
1: The family no longer lived above their grocery and now they owned both the grocery store and the only pharmacy in the Black Business District. The area's Black dentist and doctor had patients fill their prescriptions there.
0: The one Black doctor that was in town was very much, for, uh, you know, worked with them. They looted that store. The 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 the, the windows were rocks were thrown, mm-hmm. looted, you know, just just literally tore up the drug store.
1: Walter Lum's business on the far east side of Augusta was also hit. Lum is Chinese-American, and he owned Delta Manor Grocery. He also rented the upstairs apartment to the Scots, who were African-American.
3: Mr. Scott called me, said, please help me get out because they're starting to shoot in the place. I said, okay, I'm coming down to help you get out. I said, if you weren't such a good friend, I wouldn't come down.
1: Lum grabbed a sawed-off shotgun and several clips. Then he and his stepson drove to the downtown police station and asked for backup.
3: Let me have a carload of policemen. He said, I'll give you two carloads. I said, that's fine. It's my place. I'll be <laughs> the way. <laughs> so we went down there, and I got him out. And when we pulled up in front of the store, there's a little Negro girl, light-skinned, and has Afro hairstyle. She's sitting down on the curb like it was, nothing was happening.
1: Lum left his dog behind, hoping it would keep the burglars out. But he was told that after he left,
3: when I left, that's when it happened. See, I had a flat roof. They threw these fire bombs on top, and it just just demolished the whole building.
1: The push and pull of this helpful and then destructive energy basically went on all night. And James Walton had quit the force, but he still wanted to help people stay safe. So he drove his personal car to the center of it.
10: Uh, 12th Street, 12th Street, uh, Hopkins Street, 9th Street,
1: Gwinnett Street. He went around and he checked in with a number of stores, including B.L. Wong Grocery.
10: Bobby Lee Wong, I stopped in his store. And people, the store was full of people. He was a Chinese, and I went in, and he he wanted wait on everybody and get them all out. And I, I said that's the wrong thing to do, because he lived upstairs. I said you can't do it. You stay open, you stay open long as long as you can. They wasn't going in this because they was neighborhood people, and they he was always always good to people, so they didn't. They didn't he he was about the only store that they didn't tear up.
1: Walton told them people wouldn't attack the store if they stayed open. But Gerald Chow wasn't so sure. He was Wong's son. He went upstairs where the family lived, and he grabbed a rifle and strapped on a pistol.
13: And walked back into the store, and my dad asked me what was the matter with me. Now, bear in mind, I just got back from Vietnam. I'm not kind of crazy. I sat down in my chair and I said, I'm going to sleep. And when I wake up, I hope it's all over.
1: As the street boiled on without any sign of stopping, Chow agreed to leave the store and the city. But he couldn't find their car keys.
13: And I went next door to Mays Fenner home. And uh, Willie Mays Jr. was there. And, he, you know, these are people that I grew up with. So I told him, I said, look, i got to get my parents out of here. He said, I understand. He said, I'll drive you out of here, but you've got to keep your heads down.
1: Chow says Mays didn't want anyone knowing he was driving Asian Americans out of the melee. Many people, especially blacks, were stranded in the riot. They didn't have relatives in the suburbs to escape to, but Chow did.
13: And he took us to my brother-in-law's place. And he told me, he said, I wish I'd brought brought my pistol with me. And I said, You can have mine. I said, I'll get it back from you later.
1: Guns were everywhere that first night of the riot. To get back to the mortuary, Mays would have likely cut through 15th Street. By late that night, that bustling thoroughfare would have been dangerous. Police and would-be robbers were having a shootout at the Sears. An auto parts store and a warehouse were on fire. And the Payne College's 1,000 students were in the thick of it. The campus's front door was 15th Street. Professor Mallory Millinder lived on Payne College's campus.
6: I mean, it was just rapid fire all night long. I expected to hear how many hundred people died last night. Rather than six, my expectation was like 600.
1: University Hospital was flooded with victims. Randy Smith was an emergency room nurse at the time. He says people came in during the riot with bullet wounds and head injuries.
8: I just remember seeing some whites, old white people and bleeding. And then all of a sudden, it was almost like no white people.
1: All of them had left the area by early evening. More than 60 people reported injuries. A third of those victims were white, and the rest were black.
8: And the police would just come through and just shoot, shoot at them. And then the ambulance people would pick them up and uh, bring them to the emergency room.
1: Late that night, the scene at the hospital would change again.
8: We began to see soldiers coming into into the emergency room. And uh, they had fixed bayonets, and they were on guard in the in the halls of the emergency room. And then, at one point, I walked out to where the ambulances were, were coming in, and I saw an M60 machine gun on a tripod with. A soldier there.
1: Soldiers were also lined up outside of Payne College. The campus was a hot spot for civil rights activism, and the FBI was talking to at least six on campus informants. Most of those seemed to be students, and they told the FBI a small group of students were readying Molotov cocktails and walking the perimeter of the campus. Here's an actor reading an excerpt from one report.
12: A third confidential source advised he saw a student by the name of with a double barrel shotgun walking across the campus. He said this was between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. when he saw was behind the girls' dormitory. Source stated that he kept hearing shots on the campus, which sounded like rifle fire and shotgun fire. There would be one or two shots, and then everything would get quiet. When the security guard arrived the students would say that they had not heard or seen anything related to gunfire.
1: That student described in the FBI report was Reverend Chris Lowe. Lowe was the trumpet player for the soul singer, Wilson Pickett.
5: Low, us all
1: And our day by day Life battles, oh yeah that's the Wilson Pickett song, Lord, Pity Us All, which was released in 1970. That year, Chris Lowe left the band and enrolled at Payne.
14: But I wasn't, as I say, I wasn't a militant. You know? I wasn't um, into activism like that. I went up there to study. I went to go to school. But when I saw what was going on, you could not ignore it. But that was the, that was the thing that pulled me pulled me into.
1: Most Payne College students were primarily focused on their education. They were first-generation college students with strict Christian families that had scrimped for them to go to college. At the same time, the mountain of atrocities and injustices they and those around them had been experiencing made staying home feel irresponsible.
14: Then me and my Mine young mine. <laughs> I said, Well, I'm supposed to be out there. <laughs> yeah, no. um, so I get me, my partner had a 20 gauge and 12 gauge shotgun, cross built. <laughs> I mean, I strapped down. And when I went out, it was crazy. I mean, police all over the place. I went up the hill, went on Payne Campus. Yeah. And when I got on campus, you know, everybody was all scared. All the kids were out in the hall. Didn't want to sleep in their room. They was afraid somebody was going to throw fire bombs and all of this stuff.
1: White Augustans had driven through black neighborhoods, throwing rocks and firing weapons. Lowe was concerned that the same thing might happen on Payne's campus during the riot.
14: And uh, when security guard saw me, a friend, friend of my dad, he said, you, you can't stay on campus with that. He said, but Emmett Street... That was the dorm right there. He said, If you want to help, just go off campus on Emmett Street.
1: With his shotgun strapped to his chest, he stood sentry with several other students. They stalked out a spot where the campus intersected with a major road that led to white neighborhoods.
14: And I sat out there until it got late and I was satisfied that
6: nothing was going to happen.
1: That was around one or so in the morning. Professor Millinder says the National Guard arrived around that time.
6: Lester Maddox, the governor, sent in some 2,000 troops to Augusta and surrounded the Payne campus. Uh, As a matter of fact, the head of the National Guard told our president that they were not not here in this location to protect Payne College, that they had us cordoned off. Their trucks, the convoys, were all facing away from Payne College, meaning that the backs of those trucks were facing uh, Payne College full of soldiers with guns trained on Payne College.
1: Historian James Carter III says once the guard arrived, the streets got quiet quick.
11: And I never dreamed in my life that I'd see tanks coming down my street with a guy standing up in the hold of the tank with a machine gun at the ready. Uh, Troop carriers, this type of thing. And they were posting troops on corners, maybe five here, next corner, five there, and so forth. And they covered the town, oh yeah. And they had their machine guns ready.
1: The tone of everything shifted. Checkpoints were established, and many black drivers had their cars searched. The jails by that point were full, but they would get fuller, as with the hospitals. Police shot and killed six black men that night, and all of them were shot in the back. How did that happen? How did those individuals become targets? I asked my students what they thought.
0: I see a guy wearing a bandana and trying not to die of tear gas. The first thought that came to my head was, like, innocent people being shot at because they're being assumed that, you know, they're also rioters. It wouldn't be someone who was a part of the riot. It would be someone who wasn't a part of it but kind of just stumbled into it. Police were like, mm, that's the person who's probably a part of it and just shoot him. Maybe one of the protesters
4: got like a bit like too wild and then just get shot.
1: That's Atticus Dillard Wright, Tierra Duggar, Emerson Hudson, and Kalia Terman. In our next episode, we'll look specifically at the circumstances of each of the six deaths. We'll hear from witnesses to these killings, and we'll talk with the families of the victims. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to go to our website. This week's feature is an interactive map of the major events and locations involved in the riot. Go to gpvorg forward slash shots to check it out. Shots on the Back is reported and hosted by me, C. Stichura, assistant producer Rosemary Scott. Our editor is Kiyosha Howard. Additional assistance by Shaniqua Dickens and Lars Lonroth. Research support comes from Corey Rogers at the Lucy Laney Museum of Black History and John Hayes at Augusta University. Our theme was composed by Tony Aaron Music. Additional music provided by DeWolf Music. Mixing by Jesse Neiswanger. We heard archival material in this episode from WSB News Film Collection at the University of Georgia Libraries, oral histories courtesy of Reese Library Special Collections at Augusta University, as well as Lucy Laney Museum of Black History. Sean Powers is our podcasting director, and Marilyn Ryan is the station's vice president of news. Gary Dennis is the executive director of Jesse Norman School of the Arts. This podcast is funded in part by a South Arts grant. See you in two weeks.